Hello, and welcome to Breaking Protocol. I'm your host, Bob Sadowick. Today, I am truly honored to have joining me the most notable Latina woman in journalism, Maria Inoosa. Maria has had an extraordinary career reporting for PBS, CBS, WGBH, WNBC, CNN, and NPR, in addition to appearing frequently on MSNBC and has been recognized for her powerful voice, receiving numerous accolades, including winning four Emmy Awards, the Peabody Award for anchoring and as executive producer of Latino USA, and the Walter Conkrite Award for Excellence in Journalism. In 2010, Maria founded Futuro Media, an independent nonprofit organization with the mission of producing multimedia content from a POC perspective. And she is the founding co-anchor of her own political podcast, In the Thick, which is available on all major podcast platforms. Maria joins me today to discuss her new book entitled Once I Was You, a memoir of love and hate in a torn America. This honest and heart-trending memoir paints a vivid portrait of how we got here and what it means to be a survivor, a feminist, a citizen, and a journalist who owns her voice while striving for the truth. Once I Was You is an urgent call to fellow Americans to open their eyes to immigration crisis and understand that it affects all of us. Maria Inaosa, bienvenidos in El Breaking Protocol. <laughs> Thank you so much, Bob. I appreciate that. It's great to be with you. Well, it's great to have you. I'm really, I really was so moved by this book. Once I Was You is truly an extraordinary work. It's full of grit and raw emotion. And I have to be honest, I'm not a crier, but I was moved to tears on multiple occasions while reading this book. Wow. This story is truly astounding. Your bravery, how you expose your personal self in such an authentic and genuine way. Let me ask you, what stage of your career did you get comfortable with the idea that you could tell a story like this on such a personal level? Well, you know, the first memoir that I wrote was when I uh, did a memoir called Raising Raul, Adventures Raising Myself and My Son. And even in that memoir, I was very candid about things. That book sadly did not take off. I wish it would have. It was mommy lit before mommy lit even existed. But already there, I remember that just this feeling of if you're going to tell a memoir, you kind of got to be honest, words and all. You just, how can you do a memoir that's half true, that only tells half the story? And my muse, Sandra Cisneros, the great American writer, author of House on Mango Street, you know, she always told me to write as if I was in my pajamas in my kitchen. My little, you know, just like the most bared down way of you being, the most kind of casual, honest, authentic self. And so I've always kind of felt that that's what you have to do. And I do think, though, because if you read the book, one of the things that's really caught on with people is the fact that I've spoken very publicly about the imposter syndrome and battling the imposter syndrome. So that, that I think it never goes away. But, but I think by the time I was already entering into my 40s, I was like, nah, this needs to be, I, I need to be more honest. I need to be more authentic. It, it, and I never was inauthentic, but I think it was more a sense of owning my voice. And I think that, that owning my power 
really came into fruition once I once I created my own media organization called Futuro Media, and that is when I think that's when I was like, well, actually, it was it was a white woman, <laughs> uh, Elena Scotti, who was my executive director at the time, and who just basically she lectured me. She was like, hey. You're a powerful Latina. You need to own your voice. You're setting the agenda. You need to do this. And I was like, really, me? <laughs> you, you talk about, in the book, the imposter syndrome. What, is that, what does that mean to, to non-people of color? What does the imposter syndrome mean? So the imposter syndrome, which I end up calling my shadow, mi sombra, that goes, you know, goes with me everywhere, it's like this feeling. I, I remember when I first kind of discussed it with my therapist, my first well, my first longtime therapist, I remember her, I remember telling her, this was when I was a new correspondent at NPR and I could afford therapy um, and, I, and I made it a priority. I remember saying to her, I, I just think they're going to find out. They're going to find out the truth. And she's like, what truth? And I'd say, well, th- that I really can't do this, that I'm, I'm in over my head, that they hired me without knowing that I was incapaz, incapable of doing this work. Of course, I was doing the work. I was already getting the recognition. Already people could see what I was bringing in terms of my voice as the correspondent, the stories I was choosing. Everybody else thought I was cool. (laughs) But in my head... You are pretty cool. You're pretty cool. (laughs) But in my head, I was like, I'm I'm not a nerd because a nerd is always, you know, incredibly brilliant. I, I was just terrified that I was going to get found out. And so I had to work very hard at understanding this concept. And do I suffer from it now? Not really. Not, not, not. I mean, I, and I get to experience insane, insane things. Like last week, I was sitting down with Henry Louis Gates because they, they're doing a segment on the PBS show, Finding Your Roots, about me and my family's wow. roots. Wow. And so obviously, yeah, you know, Bob, I'm like, wow, wow, is this really happening? I'm yeah. like, yeah, it is really happening. And then you're like, but why me? And then you're like, whatever it is, enjoy this moment, be in the be in the present. And so I, I really have counseled a lot of people in just how you get rid of this imposter syndrome because you know, we're so busy feeling like imposters that we're not living and feeling our own power and living in it fully and and not bringing that to the table uh, because of our own fear. And that that needs to stop. I have to say, from the very first page of the book of Once I Was You, when I opened the book and began reading, you grip the reader instantaneously with a story about a young girl that you met at the McAllen Airport on the border between Texas and Mexico. And you met this young girl in the airport, and you tell this story so vividly, and it's really, honestly, to me, it it's almost, it's it's difficult to read, because, and and I'm and I'm being completely transparent and honest with you, I literally laid awake at night. Where is that young girl? And mm. do you have any idea whatever happened to her? No, no. I I dream that. Um that one day she will see this book, someone will show it to her and that she will either read it in English or in Spanish, wherever she is and see herself and get in touch. That's like my dream. That's just what I'm hoping. You know, I suppose 
they would never share that information with me though. That's the whole thing is that I know who was transporting that child. It It was an organization called Southwest Key that at that point was run by a Latino man who was getting paid $1.5 million to run Southwest Key. That was the largest uh, operator of quote-unquote shelters for children in the United States. I, I don't know. He, he was a very nice man. We did a story about him for Latino USA, although I just don't know how you can think that you're helping when you drive by an abandoned Walmart and you look at that and say, well, that is a great place to put children you're, you're sick. Honestly, if that's the way your mind operates, where you're driving by in your car and you look at an abandoned Walmart and you're like, oh my God, that's the place. We'll just set it up with cages everywhere. And that's where we'll keep the, ch- I mean, it, so uh, I, I could go back and say it was this day on this time on this flight on the, and they, they do, I assume have a manifest. But they would never share that with me. I'm an I'm an enemy to them. I I I was one of the first people who did a story about Southwest Key, um, you know, on a national scale. And so I'm I'm I don't think I'm going to get anywhere there. So I'm just hoping that she sees it and then I find out whatever happened to her. Well, I have to say that young girl is in my prayers wherever she may be. Thank you, Bob. These days, it really it, it's it's a disturbing, disturbing story, and I'm. I'm so glad it's part of this book and that and that you shared it. You were born in Mexico and you came to the USA as just a young child yourself, uh, as your father relocated to Chicago and moved the family for his career. You know, a lot of people today are using terminology that, quite frankly, it's offensive to those of us on the progressive side of the fence. And the terminology and the word specifically they use when referring to refugees is illegal. They use this word illegal. And in your book, you talk about the importance of terminology when you're referring to immigrants. And in fact, a few years ago, you were on AM Joy, a show I watch religiously, and you were talking about the misuse of this word and you responded to Steve Cortez. I just wanted to Take a quick listen to what Steve Cortez said, and then have you respond on the other side. Uh, It is most unfair, though, to legal immigrants to allow illegals to hop in front of them and cheat the system. Do you do you remember that conversation? Do I remember that? Of course I do. That that moment went viral over 10 million people more because I I just have I mean, I stopped looking. I mean, at that point, that moment was what I thought was going to become my book. I thought that my book was going to be that. The title was going to be Illegal is Not a Noun. It was going to be a pocketbook. It was going to be a, the book that's like sitting right next to the cash register <laughs> at, you know, the booksellers in the airports, you know, because I spent all my time in airports. I was like, who, who doesn't buy books in airports? Right. Um, it was going to be a short little book. It's going to be a pocketbook about why you should never use the term illegal to refer to a human being. One of the things that I'm I'm actually proud of doing is that I, I reveal failures, things that don't turn out. Um, and so I did write that book proposal and it did get rejected everywhere. <laughs> I could, at that point I could have just said, you know what? I'm not meant to write another book. That's it. But by now I had an agent and she understood what I was trying to do. And, and publishers were interested in, in my story 
that's how illegal is not a noun became once I was you. But yeah, it was I, Steve Cortez. I don't even know what to say about <laughs> Steve Cortez. You know, I went out for breakfast with Steve Cortez once um, after that had happened. He's a very Catholic man. He's raised, um, I think his father is Colombian and his mother is from Indiana. I, I don't, you know, I just, he's very hard-headed and he's very closed mind And for being somebody who's extremely Catholic, he's incredibly heartless, honestly. So yeah, I remember that moment very clearly. It was a moment when um, I think a lot of people, and I appreciate it, just kind of like I did that little shoulder move where I was like, oh, no, you didn't. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I wish, uh, <laughs> I wish our listeners could actually see the reaction. <laughs> well, they can. They can find it, you know. Um, but I did just do a little whoop, whoop, whoop. And the problem is, is that since that moment, the situation with immigrants, undocumented immigrants, refugees who are seeking refuge, who are the victims of massive human rights abuses, uh, those people are not only labeled illegal, but they have now been shut out of this country entirely. You know, Mr. Cortez, in that comment, says something that actually caught me in addition to the word illegal, and that was he he talks about jumping the line. Like, like coming to the United States is queuing up for a ride at Disneyland or something. I mean, these are human beings. They're, they're, they are truly trying to just live another day. And they are refugees. I don't understand the mentality. Are we not big enough and strong enough and great enough that we can't take care of our people and extend our hand at the same time? <laughs> well, that's the $64 million question. I mean, where are you right now, Bob? You're in Texas, right? Yes. Yeah. Okay. I don't know about you Texans, but when <laughs> I drive around Texas, I see a lot of land. Okay. You you know, yeah. when I drive around Manhattan, I don't see a lot of land. I see a lot. And, and you know, Manhattan is very compact. So maybe it might, might not make sense to bring, you know, 50,000 new residents here. And I am talking about those numbers. People need to understand that this is completely overblown. At this point, Donald Trump has reduced the number of refugees allowed to 15,000. That wow. is an insult to the world. Yeah. At its highest point, it was actually under George H.W. Bush. He was the one that increased, and I think it was at about 200,000, more or less. But still, 200,000? So... I remember when this, I mean, it's still the Syrian crisis, right? And the Syrian refugees and what's going to happen. And by the way, they haven't stopped. It's just not as on the front pages. Right. And if you understand anything about the Syrian people, you understand that these are people who will thrive anywhere they go. In Mexico, people know that the business lane, the business district is often powered by Syrian businessmen or descendants in Mexico, yeah. Mexico City, uh, Guadalajara. So I was like, dude, bring over, I don't know, 50,000 or 100,000 and let's take them to hmm, name a city, Detroit, name an area, uh, you know, Philadelphia, you know, Urban Blight, Milwaukee. Uh, I could go on and on and on. Sure. Or, or, the, or to the flatlands of Nebraska or Iowa, for God. I mean, anywhere. 
And this community is going to thrive and it's going to become a place where everybody's going to want to go because it's going to have the coolest food and the coolest night life and all of that's how we should be seeing this. We should be seeing and understanding the refugees who are coming as the most determined. How many of us, Bob, right now in this pandemic and insanity that we're living through feel stuck? Like we're like, well, I'd like to think about leaving this country and going to fill in the blank, Canada, Europe, Australia, New Zealand, etc. And we're, we're stuck. We can't like make a move, lift a yeah. foot. You know, we're just like, these are people who ha- are facing the most dire circumstances. And I'm being this dramatic because I speak to them. And the fact that they have the wherewithal in the midst of all of that to get up and go anywhere dude the these are the survivors we should we should be bringing them in and learning from them learning their spirit of survival i agree 100 percent. i mean this is and 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 i don't believe you are being dramatic i'm being i believe you're being realistic i you're you're speaking with true passion and you're speaking from the platform on which honestly this country was founded you know in your book you give us a pretty straightforward picture of your life. You, you're very transparent. You, growing up in the USA, your family, very traditional working father and a mother who raised the children. However, you attended private schools and you went to a rather impressive college. But when you see Maria Inaosa on television and you, you follow the activism on which she promotes, you seem to be drawn to more of a bohemian life than a traditional <laughs> Latino family structure, one would say. Is that accurate? And if so, where would that drive come from? Oh, because I saw it in Mexico. I mean, the first time I saw the Frida Kahlo painting, Las Dos Fridas, the two Fridas, which is iconic. Yeah. I was like, what, 10, 11, 12, maybe? So I'm like, yo, what's this? <laughs> you know... I had a whole side of my family that was deeply is bohemian intellectual artists, writers, editors, painters. I saw them. They were all my Mexican family who was very out there. These were my father's cousins. My father was the nerd. They laughed at him because he was the nerd. He was the scientist. He was the nerdy nerd. But he married an amazing woman. And my mom was very open to anybody. So they, they, and we were family. I mean, family is like, regardless of kind of, you know, your family. So you hang out. So it was modeled to me. And I wanted that. I wanted that Latin American bohemian artistic life. And in New York, I found that in the 1980s. That's what was happening here. It was, it was pretty cool. Still is. And that leads me to get married to my husband, who is an artist. Herman Perez, who you know. Yeah. Um, and so... Extraordinary artist, I might say. I mean, well, I mean, he, he was like, can you come over and look at my paintings? And I was like, are you serious? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, that's like the oldest line in the book. He knew I was a journalist. He wanted me to see his work journalistically. But what happened was when I saw his work, I fell in love with him. And he also understood the radical life of a political activist, filmmaker, artist, bohemian under an authoritarian regime in the Dominican Republic. But by the time we got together, it was not about let's just hang out and party. It was, 
we're a couple. We're together. We're each other's priority. We're going to ha- have incredibly wild parties, big ones, you know, yeah. people down the, people off the street would come in. They'd be like, wow. But, you know, we're, we're in love with each other. And uh, that's exactly, and now, you know, Hedman and I have been together. It's going to be 30 years next oh, year congratulations. in our marriage. So we've already been together 30 years, but 30 years officially in our marriage next year. And we're still, I would say, bohemian hippies, as they say in the Dominican Republic, super hippie. <laughs> <laughs> and I did, it, it was modeled in Latin America, not in the United States. Well, I have to say, having lived in the Dominican Republic for several years, the coolest people are the super hippies. So, you know, that's... Uh, <laughs> you know, it it just is what it is. I mean, it's the truth. All the, all the really, you know, people who create, you know, are the ones that truly are the, uh, the coolest, you know, the name of my show here is breaking protocol. And in a recent interview, I read that you gave, you mentioned being the first Latina in every newsroom you ever worked in. One might say you were breaking protocol. Was there ever a time when you thought, you know, I just don't know how many more hurdles I can jump? I know that I have always felt like, oh, 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 so you're going to, you're going to move the ladder now. You're going to, you're going to raise it. Okay. All right. I've always seen that. Like, I'm less like, all right, here we go. And that's basically what I would say. I'd be like, all right, here we go. They just moved it. They just increased it. it. It wasn't, it's not new to me that that would happen that I would feel like there's something that I cannot do. No. Um, and I don't mean that like, I'm so egotistical, like, Oh man, what? A, but rather if someone is asking me to do something then I have to believe that that person sees me capable of doing it. Or if I imagine something in my mind that I want to do, then I have to imagine myself capable. So I will tell you, for example, you know now because you read the book that I actually wanted to be an actor. That's why I come to New York to be an actor. Right. And, um, you know, that morphs into being a journalist. But I never gave up on acting. And actually, after Donald Trump gets elected, I I go even deeper into, well, now I'm going to become even more. I Like, I'm going to break all kinds of boundaries because what the hell? Yeah. Like, like, life is to live it, you know. Like, this is the time to do whatever we want. And so I started talking about being an actor to my friends, to people in the business that I know. Just putting <laughs> it out so, there. Right? Just, yeah, putting it out there. Just putting it out there. And so I'm close friends with the playwright, Chiara Alegria Hudis, Pulitzer Prize winner, who wrote the, the book for uh, In the Heights. Uh, and she wrote the screenplay for the movie In the Heights that will be out next year, postponed because of the pandemic. And... I told Kiara, I was like, look, I'm, I'm going to go on stage. I'm going to do this. I want to write a one-woman show, blah, blah, blah. And next thing I know, I'm getting an email that says, hey, would you like to be in In the Heights? I'm like, are you kidding? <laughs> and I thought it was going to be like a walk by, a walk, you know, just like no lines. No, I'm a character. I have lines. Wow, that's fantastic. I, tell you, I can't tell you more because it re- if I did that, it would reveal the new, the new take on In the Heights, which she has yeah. changed. So, so that happened, you know, what's like one thing that like, what's your craziest, wildest dream, not to direct, but probably produce executive produce, and then obviously be in some kind of major film or multi um, episodic series for, you know, a major 
that's television. I mean, we're doing that for podcasts, but that's, that's visual. That's either film or yeah, I want to do that. Not, not because it's about me, but because the stories that I have access to are the, the more that we can get them to a wider audience and in different mediums, the better. So that had to be one incredible phone call to get though. I have to say, I mean, you know, you just put it out there. <laughs> you, you just say, I'm going to do this. And Next thing you know, you're getting a phone call going, hey, would you like a part in this movie? I mean, <laughs> it was an email and she was like, oh, an email. Do, okay. you th- do you think you might be interested? And I'm like, do you think? <laughs> I guess it didn't take you long to answer that email. Are you kidding? <laughs> the casting director would like you for this role. Are you interested? What? So, um, you know, Bob, I like to joke that um, because I'm a Mexican immigrant, I have 16 jobs because I never say no to work. <laughs> so one of them is, uh, one of my jobs is that I'm a professor at my alma mater at Barnard College here, um, part of Columbia University, the women's college. Yeah. And I tell my students first day of class after I do an interview with them and they get their own little Maria Hinojosa debrief interview, first day of class. And then I ask them, what's your craziest wildest dream. Interestingly, sometimes they can't come up with them. My um, immigrant or children of immigrants, they often will say, I want to build a house for my mother or father and take them traveling. So that's really quite beautiful. But I tell them to think of the craziest, wildest dream they have and to never give up on it because I'm like, yo, I'm in a film. I, I mean, I just never gave up on it. So why the heck not? That that is just so awesome, and 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 obviously incredible, incredible advice to to young people who are, you know, on the threshold of their lives in the big the big city of New York, which can be extraordinarily uh, frightening, I'm sure, uh, no doubt about it. You know, you covered over the course of your career, you've covered a lot of pain, suffering, blatant discrimination on people of color, and you talk about coming home. And after maybe having been uh, on the border, for example, and having endured these experiences and this trauma and this sadness and needing to rub it off of your body before you walk into your apartment. And when you do that sort of thing, when you suppress that kind of emotion, you know, it can be very detrimental to one's home life. How do you balance that? How have you balanced that over the years? In some way, I want to answer you by saying, well, I guess I balanced it okay because Herman and I are still together. My family is still together. But this has been the biggest challenge. In that particular moment, I'm talking about, me estoy limpiando, like I'm just wiping it off my body and shaking it off my hands, you know, my legs, my feet, my face, literally shaking it off. I was shaking off September 11th. That was a particular kind of pain and horror that I was seeing on a daily basis. Yeah. The complaint from my family is that sometimes I don't shake it off, right? That I'm, I'm still carrying it when I come home or that I'm carrying any number of emotions that come from work. Bossy, you know, trying to produce everything, get everybody to do the things that they need to do. You know, da, da, da. My daughter in particular is very clear to just say, I don't need Maria Hinojosa. I need my mom. It has not all gone up, gone up in smoke, which, by the way, it could have because of these things. And so I, I feel like I have a family that they love me and support me and they bask in all of the success that I am having. It's, they, they see it in a reflection of them, too. But <laughs> they also 
do not pull the punches. They are just like, mom, stop doing that. You know, <laughs> check that ego. Why are you checking your Twitter again? You know, stop this. You know, so they keep me in check and I'm, I'm like, all right, all right. So I think we have to listen to our family. And this is, I think in terms of the book, it's definitely one of the things that I write about a lot because it's like, how do we, especially those of us who work Latinas and we're, or other women or women of color or immigrant women or Muslim women or, you know, trans women, we are expected to fight <laughs> at every level. And then it kind of becomes difficult to not bring the fight, the fight into your house. You know, you just got to learn how to separate it. Like your, your family is your, your warmth, um, your cocoon. It's not where you want to bring the war inside, but sometimes it happens and we got to get checked on that by our own family. Well, let's talk a little bit deeper about the war. And in your book, you know, I was reading about the experiences in what you refer to as the concentration camps on the border. And not only the conditions that, you know, our fellow human beings are being forced to endure, but the physical harm that they're also enduring and truly for no reason, but just attempting to survive. And, you know, this is very disturbing to me. I think it brings incredible shame on the United States. But you talk about multiple administrations on both sides of the aisle who have failed in an attempt to pursue an effective immigration policy. And I would say an element of an immigration policy lies with that particular administration's foreign policy. So in your vision and based on what you have experienced on the border, what can and should be done moving forward as it relates to immigration? Well, Bob, see, what's happened now is that we actually have to move the conversation so that we understand this is beyond immigration. This is an international human rights crisis. It is a human rights crisis that is being perpetrated in Central America by authoritarian regimes. And it is now a human rights crisis that is being perpetrated by the government of the United States against people who have committed no crime. And there's an international human rights crisis in that Mexico has become a willing partner to all of this. So, I mean, at that point, it's not like, oh, my, you know, there are a couple of undocumented, you know, a couple of thousand of undocumented. I mean, now this needs to stop. This entire detention, deportation, mass industrial complex that is making money with the private prison industry, it needs to stop immediately. How much more proof do you need except for women being forcibly sterilized? I mean, we have people who are dying. We know that women are being raped every day. I've reported wow. this. And so the fact that they are somehow allowed to stay open, uh, I, I just don't even. So that's it's gone beyond immigration. This is a human rights abuse crisis that the world has watched the United States create against people who have done no harm against them. So uh, I guess that's, that answers it. I mean, and then that means, you know, immediate is the comprehensive immigration, not just reform, but not, I don't even like the term reform now. I mean, it's like, no, but yes, everything comprehensive, people are allowed to, process into, into the green cards if they want, and they have a path to citizenship. And this 
administration, whichever one, begins an immediate massive reunification process with children and babies and toddlers who should be back with their parents. Absolutely. In the United States, because it's where they wanted to be, it's where they were going to feel safe. And that that reunification comes with an apology and with unlimited mental health services for the entire family. You know what? Okay, it sounds radical. No. What's radical is what this government has been doing to innocent people. That's radical. To me, it just sounds human, quite frankly. Everybody who's listening to this has a role to play. And you may say, well, what's my role? Well, I, I mean, at a minimum, you should be calling your, your member of Congress, right, and having an ongoing conversation uh, at a minimum. And then you should be thinking about what you're doing in your own community. People are afraid in these communities, uh, and they're everywhere. I mean, Texas, but, you know, name me a state. Idaho, they're there. Nebraska, Maine, Vermont, Alaska. Yeah, Guam. this just isn't happening at the border. This is Correct. happening exactly. around the U.S. Exactly. Tell our listeners what Operation Second Look is. I'm, I'm actually having a reaction because it gets very personal this Operation Second Look. What it is, is the Trump administration has decided that they are going to go back into the files and strip people of their U.S. citizenship and deport them. Wow. So they now have an entire office set up. It used to be uh, USCIS, Citizenship Immigration Services. I know that I've been trying to get some paperwork from USCIS for almost two years now, and I, I, they don't answer the phone. So um, everything in terms of a service that people need is halted. Meanwhile, they have taken these people who were committed to helping people become citizens, and now they are using them to reopen files and cases. So what does that look like? That looks like you're a citizen. You were involved in a crime, a heinous crime. You did your sentence already, and they come and get you and say, well, we know you served 25 years for involuntary manslaughter, but sorry, we don't want you here anymore. You know, I don't know if that now includes, you know, well, you've had, you know, you're part of the pandemic or what, I mean, they could, right? It could go sure. to that level of insanity uh, because they spoke about that at the height of people uh, being infected with the other pandemic, HIV and AIDS. You know, you were a pariah. You could not come to this country if you had that virus. That's true. So this is for real. I, I've got so many things that I'm thinking about right now in terms of challenges, just in terms of this democracy surviving that I'm not thinking about that. But I do, I do know that it, it's, it's very possible. And that, Bob, is somebody who served in the government. I think that for you, this clarification of what this is ultimately all about is the litmus test. It is reduced to, were you born in this country or not? And if you weren't, you're, you're susceptible. Well, who's to say that this government willingly takes away the citizenship of people who became naturalized citizens? Who says it stops there? Who says that right. they don't start taking away citizenship of people you know, like myself, whose ancestors are actually from here? So it's... Well, that's already... So that's already happened. So, so the crossover, thank you for saying that, because yes... People think, oh, that's so bad for you immigrants. Oh, I'm so sorry. And it's like, yeah, well, the reason why you need to do something about this is because you think it's going to stop at immigrants. 
We already know, one, that there have been U.S. citizens who have been picked up and put in detention facilities and even deported U.S. citizens. And you're thinking, well, they were brown. Okay. Border Patrol and immigration agents apparently are making up the bulk of these secret federal agents that are being tossed around into cities in order to, quote unquote, control. So people were being picked up on the streets of Portland or New York City by masked, unidentified immigration and border patrol agents who are now doing that work for the federal government. So now you begin to understand how immigration is applying to you, how now an immigration agent is coming after you, an American citizen, because you're protesting, or the fact that if they can ask quote unquote immigrants. What does an immigrant look like, by the way? Hello, Irish. Hello, Polish. Hello, Canadian. Hello, New Zealand. Hello, Australia. Hello, Germany. So if you think that they're like only going to ask those people, it's not going to stop there. So now I'm going to ask you, how do you prove you're an American citizen with your driver's license? It's not enough. You think that's enough? It's not going to be enough. So do you have a passport? Do you carry it around with you? So maybe now you're thinking, oh, well, wait a second. Where is my birth certificate? Oh, oh, now you're thinking maybe you need to go pull it out and make a copy of it because you may need it one day. Now, immigration insanity has touched you, an American citizen, which is why all of us need to be involved to make this insanity stop. You know, you have such a powerful voice and you have been a very powerful influencer for a very long time. So let me ask you this, speaking of, you know, you do all these, you know, things that are extracurricular to being a journalist. Have you ever considered putting your name on a ballot? (laughs) No. (laughs) No, Herman, you you know, you can just imagine, my husband, whenever, you know, before the pandemic, when we would be out and about. Yeah. you know, crossing a street. And I'd be like, you know, they really need to put a stop sign here. Or, you know, we really need to do something about that garbage pickup. Or I really need to talk <laughs> with the police uh, captain from that precinct. And he's just like, can you just run for mayor? Can you just run for mayor of New York City? <laughs> just run for mayor. No, I think- See, Armand was supporting this. I, he would. I understand how people could see why or how I could do that. But it's not, I, I love journalism. That's what happened. I walked away from being a political activist. I was a political activist in college, uh, a very committed one, you know, not even a seasoned one, but I loved it, loved organizing people. Oh my God, I was doing it in Chicago, here in New York. But once I got the journalism bug, I realized that I had a talent for this too, a talent to talk to people with whom I share nothing, people with whom I disagree. And so now I really feel like this is, this is my calling. I wish I had a little sister who would have decided to run. I would have totally supported that. It would have been cool. Well, there are plenty of Latina sisters in the world today, I'm sure, that would love to have Maria Hinojosa's support. No doubt about that. And hey, you know, who's the most fascinating politician right now? AOC. AOC, I'm going to announce this now because I haven't been able to get my Biden interview or my Kamala interview. And I'm like, well, if you don't give me the interview, I'm going to be speaking to the person who 
is going to have some things to say about your candidacy and why you didn't give Maria Hinojosa the interview. I wonder who that could be. Hopefully they are listening. Hopefully they well, are listening. Well, look, here's the thing, Bob. Um, if they listen to my interviews with all of the other candidates who I interviewed, all of them, Bernie Sanders gave me a full sit-down hour, everybody, Beto, Buttigieg, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. If they listen to those interviews, they will see that actually what I do with the candidates, that I do pretty well, actually, is to humanize them. Do I ask them tough questions? Oh, yeah. I asked Bernie Sanders if he would shut down all immigration detention and deportation. He said no. Seven days later, he said he would stop deportations. Seven days later. So um, don't be afraid of me, please. Like, please. So it's upsetting that they haven't given me the interview. Well, having read this story, your personal story and the experiences that you your personal experiences on the border, seeing these refugees face-to-face seeking asylum in our country, and the way you write about it in this book is really a true emotional experience for our reader. And I really I really hope that everyone listening to this podcast will take the opportunity to read this story. Because folks, it's called Once I Was You, A Memoir of Love and Hate, in a torn America, and it is available wherever you buy your books. Maria, permitame terminar nuestra conversación con esto. Que los vientos de la libertad levantan para siempre las alas de golondrina. Gracias por ser mi invitado hoy en el Breaking Protocol. Oh my goodness. Thank you for that. Uh, that was beautiful. <laughs> wow, Bob. Well, you're welcome. I, really, was, I appreciate that. Thank you so much. Truly my honor to, to have you here today. And if you enjoyed our conversation today, thank you for listening. Please click and subscribe for notification of our future episodes. If you haven't had an opportunity to read my book, Breaking Protocol, Forging a Path Beyond Diplomacy, it's available at your favorite online retailer or can be downloaded to your Kindle, tablet, or smartphone. Have a beautiful day and many blessings.